Well, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Once again, that's Matthew chapter 27. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 27, 45 to 61. This morning, we are in part two of the crucifixion. Uh, we've been studying Jesus' passion, which is to say we've been studying his suffering for several weeks now, but we are only in week two of the crucifixion. Last week, of course, we spent a considerable amount of time considering the agony that Jesus suffered on the cross, and we observed that he endured this suffering voluntarily. I don't know about you, but whenever I get to this portion of Jesus' ministry, I always find myself asking the question, why? Why? I see the, the brutality of the violence against him. I see the, the senselessness of the suffering directed at, of the hate directed at him. I see the severity of his suffering, and I keep asking the question, why? This question comes in several different forms. For instance, why did the religious leaders refuse to believe Jesus in the midst of such obvious signs and wonders? And why did the crowds turn on him so quickly after greeting him so enthusiastically on Sunday? I wonder why did Judas betray such a good and righteous friend? And why did Pilate condemn an innocent man? Why did Jesus' disciples desert him in his hour of need? And, and why would Jesus remain faithful to them in spite of their disloyalty? And the list goes on. But most of all, when I consider the agony that Jesus suffered on the cross, in particular, I wonder, why did he go through with this? What would possess him to continue to endure such misery? when he knew that he had the power to deliver himself from that pain at any moment. Whenever I ask myself this question, I'm immediately taken back to the Psalms of King David. I think if ever there's a biblical figure who comes even close to understanding what was going through Jesus' mind while he was on the cross, it has to be King David. After all, not only was David selected by God as his anointed, in his time, and then himself suffered unjust persecution from Israel's leadership as a result of his exalted status. But more importantly, he responded to such injustice with righteousness and faith. You see, I have to think there's a reason why David becomes the author of so many of the Messianic Psalms, and that reason is because David, more than anyone else, understands the psychology of the Messiah. He knows what it's like to suffer for no other reason than the fact that God chose him to be Israel's king. And he also knows what it's like to persevere through injustice with humility and submission and faith. And so he's really the natural choice to pen the Psalms describing the emotions that Christ would experience, that the Christ would experience as he suffered on the cross. Because David, more than anyone else, walked the same path and experienced those same emotions. He truly is the prototype for the Messiah. If we want to know what the Christ will look like from the Old Testament, the most natural place to look is to King David. And so when I find myself wanting to understand why Jesus would so willingly endure such incredible anguish, I naturally turn to the Psalms and I look for David to explain what possessed him to endure the same. And do you know what I find? I find psalms like Psalm 27, where David says in verses 1 through 3, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. In verses 5 to 6, he explains why he will be so confident. And he says, For he, that is God, will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above all my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. In Psalm 31, he carries a similar tone. 
In verses 9 to 13, he describes his grief in language that could easily be applied to Jesus in almost every respect save for David's recognition of his own sin. He says this, again, Psalm 31, verse 9, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become a broken, like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Again, apart from David's acknowledgement of his sin, that's, this sounds almost exactly like the kind of anguish that Jesus experiences on the cross. And yet David doesn't despair. And in verses 14 to 20, we see why. He says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servants. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. In short, when we ask the question, why did David persevere in obedience? Why, for instance, didn't he take Saul's life when he had the chance? It would seem that the answer is that it was because David trusted in God's deliverance. In other words, David expected that at the end of the day, his name would be cleared. That at the end of the day, justice would be served. The truth would come to light. In short, he believed that he would be vindicated. That's what gives him strength to go on in the face of injustice. He has a steadfast confidence that he didn't need to sin in order to defend himself because if he just held out long enough, then God would defend him. God would, in the words of Psalm 9, maintain his just cause by putting his enemies to shame. Not surprisingly, when we turn to the New Testament, we discover that this, is the same, this, same, this same thought played significantly in Jesus' mindset and his perseverance as well. Peter explains Jesus' righteous endurance in this way in 1 Peter 1, uh, uh, 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter 2, 22-23. He says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And then he explains, he says, But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So you see, we see the same hope in Jesus. He too endured injustice based on the fact that he knew God sees and that in the end God would right the wrong that was done to him. As you can see, vindication is an incredibly powerful concept, isn't it? It gives hope to those who have suffered injustice. And in giving them hope, it gives them strength to persevere in righteousness. Surely you're familiar with how this works. Surely at some point in your life, you had been falsely accused of some wrong, and and as you suffered the indignity of the accusation, you held out hope that eventually your name would be cleared and you would be vindicated. And so you persevered. Vindication is is such a powerful idea that it's even been co-opted increasingly into a popular kind of political slogan. I don't know if you've heard it used very often, but more and more you'll hear people use the phrase, the wrong side of history, or the right side of history. For instance, a politician or an activist will say of an opponent, they're on the wrong side of history when discussing one or another controversial issue. Well, what they're saying... They're trying to use this concept of vindication as a means to persuade. They're saying, in the not-too-distant future, everyone is going to agree with me. History will show that we were right, and it's going to be unanimous. We will be vindicated. So you better get on the bandwagon now, because you're not going to want to suffer the embarrassment of being on the losing side when future generations judge what we've done today. That's a very effective form of argument. No one wants to be on the wrong side of history, right? This is how powerful this idea is. Well, in today's passage, 
we're going to see Jesus vindicated. We're going to see Jesus vindicated. The passage, once again, is Matthew 27, 45 to 61. And in this passage, Matthew gives us a description of the second half of Jesus' crucifixion. The question that we've been asking, starting last week, is what do we make of the way that Jesus died? Last week we saw that the the first half of the resurrection revolves around the statements others make about Jesus. The soldiers bow to Jesus and they say, Hail, King of the Jews, in order to mock Him. The placard above His head reads, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And it's meant to be read ironically. And of course, both the crowds and the the religious leaders taunt Jesus by saying, if you're the Son of God, come down now from that cross. The issue in question is Jesus' authority. And everyone involved is saying that Jesus' crucifixion means that He is not what He says. I explained that we're supposed to read this passage with the knowledge that Jesus is who he claims to be. That's how Matthew's readers would have read it. They already knew the end of the story and have already believed that Jesus is the Christ. So we're supposed to read the passage with this knowledge that Jesus does have the authority to come down from the cross, but he doesn't do it. And when we asked the question, why not, we learned last week that Jesus suffered and died voluntarily. So he meant to be crucified. And really, the implication of the passage is is that in this, Jesus has set an example that we are all to follow. We're not to walk the road to Calvary only passively as Jesus' disciples. No, we actively, voluntarily lay down our lives for others, even when we do have an avenue of, of escape. Well, as we move into the second half of the crucifixion, we're going to see how the way Jesus died doesn't just give us an example to follow, but it also transforms our priorities now and gives us hope for the future. And the reason is because the way He died served to vindicate His name. In other words, the accusations hurled at Jesus in the first half of the crucifixion are answered and overturned in the second half. And as I think we'll see, that vindication should change the way that we think about our lives right now. Let's go ahead and read the passage and see how Matthew unfolds all this for us. Matthew 27, 45 to 61. Matthew says this. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. As today's passage ends, Jesus is laying in the tomb, dead. And when you put it in those terms, this probably doesn't sound much like a passage describing Jesus' vindication. 
But believe it or not, it is. Jesus, Jesus may be in the tomb at the end of today's passage, but the events leading up to that conclusion are, are so unique, they're so strange, and, and they point so obviously to the claims that Jesus made about Himself and, and to Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah that even though He's dead, there can still be no doubt who He is by the end of this passage and, and of what's going to happen before the conclusion of this book. Now, there are many evidence in this passage that vindicate Jesus' name, but I think in order to organize them into some type of comprehensible structure, I'd like to present them within the framework of two Old Testament figures who anticipated the Messiah. And the first Old Testament figure is Moses. Jesus' death indicates that he is the second Moses. Before Moses died, he told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 18, that God would send another prophet like him. And while there are elements of that prediction that would have meant a lot to the people of Israel specifically since it points to their future deliverance and restoration, the element that probably matters the most to you and I is the one that has to do with the establishment of the new covenant. I've talked about the Old Testament's prediction, uh, predictions uh, concerning Moses and the new covenant a lot over the past few years because this has been a major theme in Matthew, so I'm not going to try to beat a dead horse here. But just to reframe the significance of what we see in this passage, let me state once again that Moses was always clear, always clear from the very beginning that Israel's failure to keep the Mosaic Covenant and with it to inherit the promises that God had made to the nation starting with Abraham, that failure was rooted in an internal condition of the heart. Basically, before they even entered the land of Canaan, Moses told the people of Israel that they wouldn't obey the covenant that they made with God at Sinai. And the reason why they wouldn't obey is because they couldn't obey. One of the consequences of Adam's sin was that they now possessed a heart inclined against God, a heart that would naturally rebel against God. And while God had made a covenant with Abraham that pointed to the restoration of all things and, and, and marked the recipients of that promise through the external mark of circumcision, and while God had given them His law, given His law to His people as a way of maintaining His presence in their midst so that they might receive the blessing of that promise, the problem was that Israel's heart was not circumcised. They had been set apart by God externally through the promise made to Abraham. But they had not yet been changed internally to the degree that they loved God and desired to keep His commandments. Moses had given the people a law that told them what God wanted, but he hadn't in any way given them the means to be obedient to that law. The implication was that this would come through the Deuteronomy 18 prophet. By the time we get to Jeremiah 31, we learn that the fulfillment of this promise would occur specifically through the creation of a new covenant, a covenant that Jeremiah specifically says would not be like the Mosaic covenant. In this covenant, Jeremiah says God's law will be written not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. This new covenant will replace the one that Israel broke through their disobedience. And under this covenant, the people will not only be forgiven of their former sins, but they will also all know God. What Moses promised in seed form back in Deuteronomy 30, thus begins to find a fuller expression with the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. You flip over to Ezekiel 36, and what you find is that the way this new covenant will work is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, whom God will give to His people and to cause them to walk in His commandments. In Ezekiel 37, we discover that this regeneration will be accompanied by a, a natural, a spiritual, and it would appear even a physical resurrection. And that makes sense, because if the consequence of sin is death, and if the New Covenant not only erases sin in the hearts of its recipients, but also forgives them of their former sins, then it stands to reason that the penalty of sin will be eliminated as well. Again, though, although it's not explicitly stated, it seems reasonable to conclude that all of this will be accomplished by the second Moses, promised in Deuteronomy 18, who will deliver a better and more permanent covenant. By the time we get to Matthew we learn that Jesus is the one who will deliver this better covenant. It starts as early as Matthew 3, when John the Baptist predicts the arrival of 
one who will, quote, baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It continues in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus stands on a mountainside and delivers an explanation of the law that echoes the explanations that we find in the books of Moses. In Matthew 9, Jesus indicates that He's establishing a new system of righteousness that cannot fit into the old systems practiced by the scribes and Pharisees. And He then follows this up with the resurrection of a dead girl to establish His authority to make these types of claims. In short, He's constantly pointing to the fact that He's the one that's going to establish a new and better covenant. In fact, in the hours before His death, He even indicates to His disciples that He's about to establish this covenant with His death on the cross as he takes one of the cups of the Passover meal. He tells his disciples, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Luke states the matter even more precisely. In Luke, Jesus says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This wasn't necessarily expected. This was the part of the promise that that Israel didn't understand at the time that this covenant would be established through the death of the Messiah. But when you step back and when you look at how covenants work, this actually makes a lot of sense. Paul explains in Romans 7. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. You put it in that light, and that's not so hard to understand, is it? Covenants are binding, right? Until one of the parties dies. As Paul explains in Galatians 3, no one can annul or add to a covenant after it's been ratified. It's permanent. The only thing that can release a party from the terms of the covenant is death. This means that God cannot establish a new covenant until one or another party of the old covenant dies. At the cross, Jesus is not just offering himself up as a perfect sacrifice for sins. He's doing that, but he's not just doing that. He's, he's dying so that everyone who believes in him might be released from the terms of the old Mosaic covenant through identification with his death. As Paul continues in Romans 7, continuing to talk about this relationship with death, marriage, covenants, all this, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that, you might know, so that you might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. This is part of what's so remarkable about the cross. When we place our faith in Jesus, when we identify with Him, we are crucified with Him at the cross. He dies as our substitute, and God regards His death as ours. And this happens so that we might not be bound any longer to the legislation of the Old Covenant, but to the mediator of the New, who then pours out the Spirit on our hearts so that we might bear fruit for God. As Paul states in Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Likewise in Romans 6, 6-7, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now once again, the people of Israel missed this aspect of the New Covenant. They missed that there had to be a substitutionary death for a person to be freed from the conditions of the Old Covenant and thus permitted to participate in the New. But that's what Jesus said He was going to do at the cross. He was going to establish a new and better covenant. One that would not abolish per se, but actually establish 
and even fulfill the intent of the Old Covenant through the work of the Spirit. As Jesus dies, God testifies to the fact that He has indeed accomplished this purpose. And we see this through two miracles and one sign. The first miracle is the, the tearing of the temple curtain in two. There's some debate here about which curtain Matthew's referring to when he says that the, te that the temple curtain was torn in two because there were two temple curtains. The first curtain, the outer curtain, would have separated the portion of the temple that the priests entered for sacrifices, which was also known as the holy place, from the adjoining courtyard. Uh, thus, this would have been a curtain that every Israelite male uh, entering the temple precincts could have been able to see. The second curtain, the inner curtain, separated the priests from the most holy place where only the high priest was allowed to enter, and only once a year during the Day of Atonement. Again, this was a curtain within the holy place, and so it was a curtain that only the priests would have been able to see. And of course, in the Old Testament, it was behind that second curtain, within the most holy place, that the presence of God resided with the Ark of the Covenant. The fact that this miracle seems to have been witnessed publicly indicates that perhaps it's the outer curtain that's, that's torn. However, the language Matthew uses here may indicate that it's actually the inner curtain, the one that goes into the Holy of Holies that's torn. I think it's more likely that Matthew's referring to the inner curtain, but regardless, I think the point is essentially the same. When this veil is torn in two at the moment of Jesus' death, God is indicating that the old covenantal system is over. Those terms are no longer binding because Jesus has freed His people from its conditions through His death. The tearing of the curtain, particularly the inner curtain, which again is the curtain that I think Matthew refers to here, the tearing of that curtain is symbolic of the fact that not just that the old contract has been ripped to shreds through the death of Jesus, but that there is established in His death a better means of access to God than, it was, than what was established under the old temple system. Matthew doesn't spend a lot of time developing that theology here in his gospel. You have to go to the Gospel of John to get a better sense of how this works. But regardless, the point is the same. The old Mosaic covenant was established as a means of, the of, of maintaining the people's fellowship with God, of allowing God to dwell in the midst of an unholy people. While well, through his death, Jesus has established a better means through the ratification of the new covenant. So the Old Testament system of worship is over. It has been replaced through the system established with the ratification of the New Covenant. I think it probably goes without saying how significant this miracle is for you and I in this light. What it explains is why we as Christians do not go to the temple to offer sacrifices year after year as an expression of our worship. It, in fact, it explains why we do not worship in any one particular place whatsoever. It also explains why we are not bound to the conditions of the Mosaic Law found in the Old Testament. The reason is that through His death, Jesus fully and finally ended the marriage to those conditions for everyone who believes in His name. We are now members of a, of a better and a more permanent covenant in which we do not merely have external commands written on tablets of stone, but an internal law written on our hearts. We are now ruled by the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and righteousness and who compels us through our love to do the very kinds of things prescribed in the old system of rules and commandments, but to do so willingly and voluntarily. The whole nature of what our life in Christ looks like is shaped through the message communicated here through this first miracle, the, te the tearing of the temple curtain in two. In the second miracle, we get a foretaste of the hope that's offered to us in this better covenant. We see this miracle in verse 52, and Matthew says that as the earth shook and the rocks were split, several tombs were opened. And out of those tombs, after Jesus' resurrection, came the bodies of many of the saints who had fallen asleep. I think this is one of those moments where we're begging for more information, right? Matthew doesn't tell us here who was raised, or for how long, or what happened after they were raised. He just says that they were raised. 
and that they were raised after the resurrection of Christ. Jesus has to be the first that was raised because he's the first fruits from the dead. Everyone else's resurrection is based on his, so his has to come first. But that being said, Matthew pulls the resurrection back here to the moment when the graves were first opened because he sees in that event the basis for the subsequent resurrection. Once again, resurrection was connected with the new covenant because the new covenant would completely erase the consequences of sin in the lives of its participants. Both the penalty and the power of sin would be undone. This points to freedom from death. It points to resurrection. Well, it was at Jesus' death once again. It was his death that ratified this new covenant. And so even though the resurrections happened later, Matthew understands that they really start here with the opening of the tombs at his death. Because it is Jesus' death that serves as their basis. So you see once again how Jesus is vindicated in his death, how his death proved that he is the second Moses. And this vindication is, is further advanced by the way in which he was buried, which is one of the signs of this whole episode. It was incredibly unusual for the crucified to be buried in anything other than a common grave. But here... We see a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea come and take Jesus' body and bury him in his own tomb. That should evoke memories of Isaiah 53, 9, which says, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53, you will recall, is perhaps the most famous Old Testament passage that predicts the vicarious suffering of the Messiah. It's the passage that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago to explore the implications of Jesus' suffering. And in verses 5 to 6, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a reference to the substitutionary sacrifice of the Messiah, where he offers himself up as a sacrifice for sin in our place. According to the author of Hebrews, it's on the basis of this superior sacrifice that Jesus mediates a better covenant in which he enters once for all into the holy places as our high priest. He comes not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but on the basis of his own blood. This is a better and a, and a more permanent sacrifice. And thus the old temple system, it's no longer needed. The veil is torn in two because Jesus is the second Moses. He has established a new and better covenant. Of course, the implications of all this are huge for you and I. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.20 that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits are the first part of the harvest, the, the very first produce that you gather during the harvest season. So the idea is that Jesus' resurrection is supposed to be seen as a promise of a greater resurrection to come. He's just the beginning. The open tombs at His death and the resurrected saints that then come out of those tombs is proof of that concept. And what it means is that you and I have hope that even though we may die, we will yet live. And we know this because there is hard data, historical proof of a future resurrection for all the saints from this initial resurrection from the dead. Don't sell short the significance of this point. Like when you have a health scare, right? You find a lump or a blotch in your skin that wasn't there before. Or you start having headaches that you've never had before. Or whatnot. And those thoughts begin to creep into your mind that maybe it's your turn. And you start to sense your own mortality. You realize that you're not going to live forever. And that death may finally be coming for you. And that it may be closer than you think. And you start to fear. And you start to worry, and you start to wonder what's going to happen next, if all that's true. When those moments come, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be anxious. Because God has already shown in the death of Christ that His sacrifice was sufficient, that His offering was enough. The better covenant has already been ratified, ratified through His death. And so the blessings of that covenant, which include forgiveness of sin and with forgiveness eternal life, those blessings are already guaranteed. And we know they're already guaranteed because we already see them coming to fruition. 
The truth of these realities are already starting to be, be, be present in this world. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The veil of the temple is now torn in two. And so now the dead, they have already started to come to life. This is a present reality. And I think this leads us to our next point. The fact that the new covenant has already been established and that its effects are already being worked out in the world are incredibly significant in light of our next point which is Jesus is the second David. So Jesus is not just the second Moses, but he is also the second David. And once again, this is evidenced by the way Jesus dies. What's the significance of Jesus being the second David? Well, David was the warrior king of Israel. David was a psalmist, of course, and he wrote many songs praising God for his beauty and faithfulness. He was a musician. He was an artist. But he was also a steadfast, and I think you can even say a ferocious warrior. And when you look at the promise that God made with David, it's linked to this part of his personality and role. It's linked to his authority as a king and to his faithfulness to wage war against God's enemies and give his people peace. When he establishes what we now call the Davidic Covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. This is what he says. This is a longer passage, but I want to read it. If you want to turn there, you can turn there and read it for yourself. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. This is the covenant that God promises with David. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you whenever, wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. You shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what does God promise in that covenant? Of course, he promises to raise up a descendant who will build the temple that David was planning to build. That's probably the first concern here in this context. However, I think more significantly, he promises to establish the Davidic throne forever. And he promises to discipline and chastise David's descendants to bring that promise about. And, and he promises to appoint a place for Israel where they will no longer be disturbed by their enemies. The implication is that God is going to raise up a king who will defend Israel and give them rest. And as we turn to the Psalms, this is exactly what we find. The Messianic Psalms predict a Davidic king who will give Israel rest from their enemies by shattering the kings of the earth. In fact, they really depict a Davidic king who will bring Israel rest through the establishment of a throne that results in worldwide rule and authority. Of course, we find this promise in places like Isaiah 9, verses 3 to 7, which says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. 
to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Once again, the idea, right, is that Israel is going to have rest and there will be peace. But this is a peace that will come through the strength and authority of this future Davidic king. No doubt this means that there's a lot of hope in the promise of this Messiah, right? His, his reign means global peace. It means an end to war and an end to violence. It means a world in which the ugliness and pain of sin has been dealt with. And yet it should be noted that this is a peace that comes through the judgment of the wicked and through the, the punishment that the Messiah will dole out on everyone who refuses to bend the knee and submit to His righteous reign. Well, at the cross, we see the evidence that Jesus already possesses this authority and that the day of judgment is, in a sense, already at hand. We're clued in to begin to look for these signs in verse 46 when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's an allusion to Psalm 22, which begins with these very words. We read that psalm during our call to worship last week, and if you recall, that psalm describes the crucifixion of the Christ in vivid detail. That psalm, again, written by David, describes the Messiah's bones as being out of joint, and of his, of his heart being melted like wax. It speaks of his hands and his feet being pierced, and of his enemies dividing up his clothing by casting lots. Jesus evokes the memory of that messianic psalm as he himself experiences the agony of God's wrath during his final hours on the cross. The crowds begin to wonder whether or not Jesus is calling for Elijah. And, and that may be because he says, Eli, Eli, or according to Mark, Eloi, Eloi, which means, my God, my God, but which can perhaps sound like, to a, a bystander, Elijah, Elijah. Personally, though, I don't think that's why the people think Jesus is calling for Elijah, because of the sound of those words. Rather, I think the reason why they think Jesus might be calling on Elijah is because of what's said in Malachi 4, 5, which is, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You see, the people understand. They know what Jesus has claimed about himself throughout this gospel. He's claimed to be the Davidic king. He's claimed to be the one who will not only restore Israel, but will judge the world in righteousness. Again, that's why the Roman soldiers are bowing before him in mockery, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. That's why the placard above his head says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They know what he's claiming. The people have challenged Jesus, saying, If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. And perhaps most importantly, they say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Well, now Jesus begins to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you know how the people interpret that? They interpret that as Jesus taking them up on their challenge. He's crying out to God for deliverance. And since he's claimed to be the promised Davidic king, that must mean that he's asking God to send Elijah to deliver him from the cross so that he can begin to dole out the judgment of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So the people run, and they get a sponge filled with wine to quench his thirst and allow him to speak, and they say, wait, let, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Personally, I find this really rather interesting. Because there's a kind of fear in this response. There's a kind of doubt among Jesus' enemies where they recognize that they might be wrong and Jesus really might be who He claims to be. And this is just further evidence that they know that what they're doing is wrong. They know. They know what the signs and the miracles pointed to. And now they're just hoping against hope that they're wrong. The problem, though, at least from our perspective, is that Jesus does not come down from the cross at this point. Elijah does not come to deliver him. So does that mean that the crowds were right? 
Does Jesus' death prove that he is not the second David? On the contrary, what we find is continued proof from God in his death that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. First, we have a miracle that testifies to Jesus' divinic identity. That comes in the form of the earthquake and the darkness. In verse 45, Matthew says that starting in the sixth hour of the day, which is noon, until, about the, until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock, there was darkness over the whole face of the land. In verse 50, it says that when Jesus cried out and yielded up his spirit, the earth shook and the rocks were split. You go back to the Old Testament. And darkness and earthquakes are often a sign of judgment. In fact, it's not uncommon to see these signs associated with the future day of the Lord itself. Amos 5, 18-20, for instance, says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is, a, it is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Likewise, Joel 2, 30-31 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In Zechariah 14, the Lord descends to defend His people on the day of judgment. And as He stands on the Mount of Olives, it is split in two as one side flees to the north and the other to the south. So you see the darkness... And the earthquakes, these are indications of divine indignation and wrath. Really what they are is a foretaste of the coming day of the Lord. They're pointing to the events that Jesus described in the Olivet Discourse when He said that in the beginning of that day there would be famines and earthquakes in various places. And that immediately before His arrival, the sun would be turned to darkness and the moon would not give its light. That's what this is an expression of. It's an expression of God's indignation against the world for the treatment of His Son. And you know what? The centurion on hand gets it. He sees all these things take place, and you know how he interprets it? He says, truly this was the Son of God. He sees the charges hanging above Jesus' head. Perhaps he even participated in the mockery in Pilate's headquarters. He hears the people saying, if you're the Son of God, come down now from that cross. And then he sees what happens when Jesus dies. And he's filled with awe, or actually, more literally, fear. That's what the Greek actually says here. He's filled with great fear. And he says, truly this was the Son of God. That is not insignificant. That's incredibly important. In fact, this is a sign pointing to the fact that Jesus is the second David. A Roman soldier witnesses Jesus' death and he's terrified. He's literally quaking in his sandals in recognition of what, he's just, what has just been done and what he personally has been a party to. Remember, I said during the Olivet Discourse that Daniel tells us the Antichrist comes from a revived Roman Empire. The Messiah, when He comes, will destroy Rome. He delivers Israel from the power of Rome. Matthew shows us in His death, Jesus has already demonstrated that power. Rome is already shaking at the thought of the Messiah's wrath, even if it is at this time confined only to the soldiers who were there to witness His death. You see, the message of the crucifixion is not only that the blessings of the new covenant have already arrived, but that the day of judgment is also already at hand. This is why when Peter explains the tongues in Acts 2 by telling the people that it means that Jesus is the Messiah and that He's been raised from the dead and that the day of the Lord is already at hand, Luke says that they were, quote, cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's a cry of panic. They realize they've made a terrible mistake and they're fearful that the second David could come back at any moment and execute judgment on them. Of course, the good news for us is that we no longer have to fear that day. As Peter told the people in Acts 2, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Jesus has not come back in judgment yet. And the reason is because God has extended a day of mercy during which everyone who believes in Christ can be forgiven of their sins and delivered from the day of His wrath. This means that if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, then you don't have to fear God's wrath because Jesus died on the cross to deliver you from it. However, at the same time, I think this passage, passage should still cause you to pause and, and to recognize that the day of the Lord is near. That the end of all things is at hand. Just like the hope of the new covenant has already come into the world, so also the wrath of God has already come into the world. In the words of 1 John 2.8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The last days are not at some point in the distant future. In a sense, we're already in them, and we have been for the past 2,000 years. And so really what this passage should do is it, it should cause you to reevaluate your priorities in light of the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize, Christian, that the day of the Lord could begin and Jesus could return to deliver His people at any moment? This should fill us with hope, certainly, but it should, it should also give us a sense of urgency. You know, so many of us just try to just, just kind of sort of pad our nests and settle down and make our lives comfortable as if this is going to be our home into eternity. Christian, this world is not your home. This life is not your best life, the best life you have to live. The things you see around you are all temporary and disposable. It's all going to be transformed and eventually even remade at the coming of our Lord Christ. Everything, everything, that is save for the souls moving and working and living around you, will be destroyed. They, those souls, they will not be disposed of or transformed. Instead, they will suffer the wrath of God and hell for their sins. Do you live with that sort of a mindset? Do you live with the kind of urgency that should accompany this belief? Stop for a moment and consider your priorities. Consider the things you spend time on, the things you invest in. Consider the decisions you make in your life. Are they made in light of Christ and His kingdom? Are they driven by what this passage says about your eternal destiny? If not, let what Matthew, let what Matthew says here sober you. And may it lead you to reconsider what your priorities should be in light of the very near coming of our Lord Jesus Christ.